I'm Jackie Lydon, and this is The Seams. Clothing is our common thread. In every stitch, a story. The 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month of the year marks the anniversary of the Armistice, the cessation of hostilities in 1918, the end of World War I. Here in the United States, we now commemorate this holiday as Veterans Day. World War I was, of course, supposed to be the war to end all wars, and yet in my own lifetime, I've covered three wars, both the Gulf Wars and Afghanistan. So the appeal of camouflage has always rather surprised me, especially the way that we use it in sports. In 1996, the San Diego Padres started using camo in their baseball uniforms. Now, they're near a big naval base, but camo has migrated across baseball into college sports and football, too. And lots of pro teams declare November their month of salute to service, using a camouflage pattern for their team colors. We thought we'd check in with ESPN commentator Paul Lucas to tell us about camo, not on the battlefield, but on the sports field. Hello there, Paul. Good to be here, Jackie. So, you know, this this trend seems a little odd to me. Um, how do military personnel feel about sports teams wearing camo? I mean, that used to be exclusively the province of somebody who went into basic training or someone who was going into hostile territory. You know, it was for people in harm's way. Of course, I guess you could say sports teams are, but, you know, bullets are not <laughs> supposed to be flying. It's not quite the same kind of harm's way. To my knowledge, there's been no scientific polling or, you know, official uh, data collection uh, in terms of how the military personnel feel about this. But I have done some informal outreach on my website and among my readership, and I have invited both active and retired military personnel to weigh in on this. And I've gotten responses from several hundred people. And I would say it breaks down, at least in, among those people who responded, the three major camps. The first camp is the, the people who love it. They think it's great. They think anything that promotes and encourages uh, support for the military is a positive. Then there are the people on the exact opposite side who say, this is basically a bunch of athletes playing dress-up soldier. Dressing up in a, in a military or military evocative uniform is, is not something to be done lightly. It's a privilege. Uh, we are in harm's way. We are the ones who wear this. You should not be wearing this. And then in between, uh, there is a large middle group that says, I appreciate the gesture, but it looks ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Camouflage looks great in the jungle, or you know, it hides you in the jungle. It has a specific design function, but it doesn't really work on a sports uniform, and it just looks absurd. And many of those people, I should add, also say that while they appreciate the notion of being regarded as heroes, uh, which is a term often used in the marketing uh, and promotional literature that you see surrounding these uniforms, that it's a salute to heroes, many military uh, personnel who I've corresponded with say, we are not heroes. I am not a hero. This is just my job. Uh, and there are plenty of other people out there who are every bit as heroic as I am, whether it's a teacher or a doctor or a nurse or a cop or a fireman or whoever it might be. And I am not out here being a hero. I'm just doing the job I signed up for. I want to ask you this as the ultimate uniform philosopher of, of all these signs and symbols. It also seems to me that for a fan, it kind of sends a mixed message because are you rooting for the team or are you rooting out of patriotism, kind of just conflating, uh, you know, being at the sport? Yeah, I think that's one of the problematic aspects of these camouflage uniforms or military tribute uniforms. And this is something we've been wrestling with in American society 
at least since soldiers came back uh, from the Vietnam War, right, where there's the question of whether you support the military or support the mission and whether we conflate support for the military with patriotism. And I think it's a complicated issue, and as is often the case with sports, sports has a way of distilling things down to very black and white issues. And, and I think, yeah, if you're cheering for your team, no matter what they're wearing, then you're cheering for the military and you're cheering for, does that mean you're cheering for uh, no matter what the military is doing? Unfortunately, I think in some ways the, the military uniforms can accentuate and bring to the fore some of the same issues uh, that can divide people when they get away from the ballpark or the stadium because uh, there's, there's no way of getting around the fact that, that military policy is wrapped up in political policy and people's political differences uh, are, are the kinds of things that can cause friction. Uh, and, you know, part of the explosion of these military support or tribute sports uniforms came when we were still heavily involved in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I think it created a lot of very problematic issues for some fans. Uh, and especially, you know, sports is supposed to be something that unites generations. You know, you may not get along with your dad or your brother or whatever it might be, but you can all agree to, to root for your team on game day. But unfortunately, I think in some ways the, the military uniforms can accentuate and bring to the fore some of the same issues that can divide people when they get away from the ballpark or the stadium. There's no way of getting around the fact that military policy is wrapped up in political policy and people's political differences are the kinds of things that can cause friction. I think that that is one of the issues that makes camouflage uniforms somewhat problematic. Paul Lucas blogs about uniforms for ESPN, and he's all over the uniform beat on his own blog, UniWatch. We call it Veterans Day, but in Europe, it's still known for the First World War, Armistice Day. The armistice stopped the fighting in 1918, but the Treaty of Versailles didn't officially end the Great War until the next year, in 1919. Paul Lucas told us that in recent years, American football teams that have played exhibition games in England wear poppy decals on their helmets in honor of Armistice Day, marking the great loss of life on the battlefields of Europe. Back when I was a young Middle East war correspondent, beginning in 1990, I noticed so much went on in the lives of war reporters, and I thought, no one's ever going to care about us or know what our lives were like. The stress, the fear, the risks. And then a helmet became an object of commemoration, because like clothing and even like a notebook and pen and a microphone, a helmet becomes part of the whole experience. It protects your life, and that protects your story. In 2004, artist Cindy Kane was painting on Martha's Vineyard, listening to the radio, and wondering how to preserve the backstories of journalists. She contacted about 50 war journalists, both the veterans and the newbies, and I was one of those 50 people. She wanted our ephemera, the notebook paper pages we used, plane tickets, press conference notes, diaries, doodles, almost anything. And once she got her personal papers, she plastered them onto steel helmets from the Vietnam War era, one helmet for each journalist. Last year, Cindy's collection of helmets became an art exhibit at the Sprint Flatiron Prow Art Space in New York, 50 helmets suspended from the ceiling. 
It looked like a platoon of phantom soldiers marching down Fifth Avenue. At the exhibit's opening, I got the chance to catch up with some of my old friends, like Tony Horwitz. I was a correspondent mainly for the Wall Street Journal from about 1987 to 1993, covering conflicts in Iraq, the Balkans, and Northern Ireland. What did you think when Cindy asked you to give notes for a helmet? I mean, what was your reaction to the whole concept? I guess my first reaction was I was glad she chose helmets rather than other parts of our protective gear. Um, When I was covering the Bosnian Civil War, I had a Kevlar vest with a retractable groin plate, for which I was thankful at the time, but I'm glad my notes aren't now splayed across a metal codpiece. The moving part for me is seeing the helmets of those who didn't make it home. Anthony mm-hmm. Shadid, and there might be others. We're here as superannuated war correspondents who can visit, you know, our youths. Um, but, you know, uh, some, some people don't make it back from the field. And I think it's wonderful that they're represented as well. Anthony Shadid was an author and reporter for the New York Times. In 2012, he suffered a fatal asthma attack in Syria. So there was no knowing who was going home and who might not be. I worked in NPR's Baghdad Bureau with Jamie Tarabay, who now works for Al Jazeera. The closer she got to the end of one of her Iraq tours, the more nervous she'd become. I am looking at my Iraqi Airways plane ticket, which was actually from Baghdad to Dubai. And... uh, I'm almost getting heart palpitations <laughs> looking at the plane ticket and the anxiety because every time I had one of these in my hands, I was so close to getting out. And I think by that point, you sort of stop stressing about the security and you think, I've just got to get in the air and then I just have to get out of firing range from the RPGs, 10,000 feet, 10,000 feet, and then you're okay, you land in Jordan and, and you know, you're fine. Once, in 1991, I was out somewhere, in Lebanon, I think, and over BBC came the news that my own NPR colleague, Neil Conan, had been captured at the Iraqi border, along with Chris Hedges. Chris was then with the New York Times. Uh, He and I were in Kuwait, and you can see the, the Kuwait reference in the fires on the helmet from the burning oil fields. There was so much oil clouds in the sky, and I honestly wondered if the sky was going to catch fire. There was so much oil in those clouds. There were reports of an insurrection underway in Basra. And so Chris and I uh, went up to see what was going on. And I'd always wondered how Chris explained that on his his expensive report to the New York Times. You know, Land Rover, comma, one, missing. Remember, we were captured by the the Iraqi army. They kept saying, where did you get the car? But we were held for, uh, I guess, about a week. Finally, we were released into the custody in, uh, in Baghdad of the uh, International Committee of the Red Cross, and then um, driven all the way to the Jordanian border, where I then took the uh, most expensive cab ride in the history of National Public Radio, uh, and into the arms of Miss Jackie Leiden, who was waiting for me in the Intercontinental Hotel in Amman, uh, where she then proceeded to uh, calm me down with bottles of scotch. (laughs) (laughs) The next day, we took off. We went up to Jerash, to the Roman amphitheater, like tourists, and sat down among the red spring poppies. But you know, not everybody's hunted up. 
I caught up with my longtime friend, NPR's Deb Amos. This was just a couple hours before Deb was getting on a plane to Istanbul. She has spent a lot of time on the border with Syria. She's still at it. She was holding her helmet in her hands. It's surprising to see it this many years later and realize this is my handwriting and I write democracy on deadline, 10 p.m. I don't know if that's the deadline for democracy. I don't know what that is. There's a telephone number. Uh, I don't recognize that number, but I do re- recognize a, an election um, handout from Basra. It's 2005 elections and there's Iraqi currency. So it's just really odd to look at all this stuff this many years later. You know, it's like a frozen moment in time. It's a piece of art, except it's personal to me. I I can look at the other helmets and see them as pieces of art, except this one is mine, and there's my stuff here. Our thanks here to artist Cindy Kane. We reporters are identified with these helmets, objects that protect the body, the head, the brain. They protect our stories, which we pass on to you. Cindy Kane's The Helmet Project has toured the country and it's looking for a permanent home. You can see a link to it on our website at theseams.org. Now to our segment, Who I Am and What I Wear. This is the part of the show when we hear all about the meaning and memory behind someone's wardrobe, what experiences have led them to their style of choices. This week, our guest is a soldier. Well, he's a former soldier at any rate. He's an army veteran and a former mercenary. He wrote a book called The Modern Mercenary, Private Armies and What They Mean for World Order. Now, you might not think that having a military background like that would lead to an interest in clothes and what they mean, but you'd be wrong. My name is Sean McFate, and I spent the first eight years of my life, professional life, uh, as a paratrooper and officer in the 82nd Airborne Division, where besides wearing the coveted maroon beret, I had the privilege of wearing officer's mess dress, which looks sort of like a military peacock. Uh, And while wearing it, though, I felt 10 feet tall. That's what every military uniform worth its salt should do for you. One wears sky blue, waist-high cavalry trousers with a gold stripe down the side with patent black shiny shoes. You wear a tuxedo top, and then you wear this small jacket that comes around your waist with gold-laced trim, rank, and your ribbons, and the interior lapels were silk red, brilliant silk red. And you wear white gloves and a bow tie, obviously. Um, Who would not join the army to wear that? After my service in the military, I ended up becoming a private sector warrior in Africa, working for U.S. government contracts, but doing some very odd things, like raising a military for another country. I was also involved in helping prevent a potential genocide in Rwanda and Burundi, and some other very odd things. 
things that my military skills were useful at, but also some other skills as well. Some of those skills include knowing, yeah, what he should wear as a modern-day mercenary. Well, the first thing from head to toe is Oakley. Oakley is a key brand for all discriminating mercenaries, sunglasses and tactical boots particularly. But there's a whole range of other things, uh, what we call one's action slacks. These are sort of fatigues, usually khaki in color with Velcro cargo pockets and so forth. A famous brand of this is something called 511. And lastly, the belt. Belts are important. You need a thick web belt and you need to have on it your maglite, small maglite, your Leatherman tool, and in your right pocket, you need to have a small jackknife, but a very sharp one. It signals to other people who you are. Washington, D.C. has other kinds of details that signal to other people who you are and how important you are, of course. Washington is just like the Army. Every man has a uniform, and if you don't know that, then you're out of uniform. The man uh, in Washington, the professional uh, uniform, is the ubiquitous dark blue or dark gray suit with a white shirt and a tie. Now, not just any tie, but preferably an Hermes tie. And men who are in, in the code know what to look for, and those who are not in the code are quietly ridiculed. So I just finished a book tour in the UK, and my last talk was actually the House of Commons in Parliament Building in London. And for that, I represented the American flag by wearing a very DC uh, suit and outfit, different than the Londoners. It was more of the American boxy style suit. Being a Yank from the New World, I felt I had to sort of sport our colors. And I, I lament this power suit. It's so boring. I wish for the Middle Ages of the Renaissance where they could wear velvets and they could wear fur and boots and weapons and jewels and all in the same you know, outfit. It may not be fur and velvet, but Sean McFate does add some flair to even his predictable DC suit. He showed these embellishments to us. They're just as commanding as his old army mess dress, if a little quieter. Men have so very few opportunities to show their true spirit, colors, and soul, and fashion. Cufflinks is one of the few things that remains to us. So these are two cufflinks I had made for me when I was in Liberia. At the time, I was working with the Minister of Defense, demobilizing Liberia's legacy military that, under Charles Taylor, had committed all sorts of human rights abuses. On my way out, after spending a few years there, he said, you know, go down to this jeweler in downtown Monrovia and get yourself some cufflinks. So these are a pair of cufflinks that are African tribal masks of, that are native to Liberia. And so I had two sets made, one in solid gold and one in silver. One has a scowl, the gold has a scowl with horns. The other one is a long face with very long earlobes and five spiky, you know, hair, not a crown. They're meant to intimidate. Sean McFate. He's the author of The Modern Mercenary, 
private armies and what they mean for world order. He teaches at National Defense University and Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. His next book is a thriller. It's called Shadow War, and it'll be out next year. And by the way, its hero is a very snappy dresser who wears some touches you just might recognize. That's it for this episode of The Seams. It was produced by Elaine Heinzman. Our editor is Marcus Rosenbaum. Our intern is Georgie Goldstein. Our web designer is Justin Miko. And we had help in this podcast from Susan Boyd. Our theme song, Fortune Cookie, is from the album The Further Adventures of Low Straight Jackets, used with permission from the band Low Straight Jackets. To see photos from the stories featured in this episode, look for us on Instagram, Pinterest, Facebook, and Tumblr. Just search for The Seams Podcast. Talk to us on Twitter. Our handle is at Seams Podcast. And please, if you like what you hear on The Seams, rate our podcast on iTunes and write a review. We really thank you for that. And over Thanksgiving weekend, on All Things Considered, The Seams will have its first story in our upcoming series, Seminal People of the Cloth, A Patchwork History. There was a lot of tribal appropriation. So at the time, I started writing the companies, and so did my cousins and my sisters, and we all got together and started this small group called Seminoles for Authenticity. I'm Jackie Lydon, your head seamstress. Thanks for listening. <laughs>